Hello and welcome to the Get French Football News show. The French national team is back after 10 months of inaction. The new National League campaign starts with a lackluster 1-0 win in Sweden. Kylian Mbappé, the lucky goal scorer, as Antoine Griezmann's penalty woes continue. Croatia is up next, but that will be without Mbappé, who was just tested positive for COVID-19. We have a special guest here today as well. His name is Laurent Dubois. He's a historian of the French national team. And we're going to talk about the recent anti-racism protests in sport. How come there have been fewer in France than elsewhere? And, and, you know, the general state of racism in French football as well uh, will be touched upon. I'm your host, Pierre-Paul Birmingham, here today. Uh, We have Jeremy Smith, too. Hi. Hey, Jeremy. And uh, Laurent Dubois. Hi, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Great to have you on. So uh, for those of you guys who don't know him, Laurent Dubois is a professor of history and of romance studies at Duke University. And he's a a specialist in the history and the culture of the Caribbean and especially of Haiti. But he is also a historian of the French football national team. Uh, He has a book that came out in 2010 called Soccer Empire, which talks about France's colonial history and how that impacted the history of the French football team, especially as seen uh, through the history of the World Cups. Um, and another soccer book that came out in 2018 called The Language of the Game. Uh, so it's very exciting to have Laurent on with us today. Uh, Laurent Dubois, any any family ties to Léo Dubois at all? Or I, Well, you know, who knows? I'm going to start doing the research now. now that <laughs> I, I'm excited that I can probably, I'm hoping I can finally get a uh, French national team jersey with my name on it. Um, that's oh. not, you know, just just sewn on by somebody. Exactly. Um, so, and I do, I do love, I do love hearing someone say, you know, Dubois to Mbappe, you know, or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Dubois is outside. He's actually, you know, he's. I mean, not. That, I, I don't know why I'm saying this, but he's actually really good. Like as if someone with my name couldn't be a good soccer player. But, but uh, yeah, I was, I was actually quite pleased to see him in the uh, in the game. Um, Dubois cross doesn't beat the first defender again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's I guess more likely. There was also oh the first time I when I it was I think it was a I forget what game it was not not on the French team but another game that where someone said like a, a, you know an arm to the face of Dubois who certainly does not appreciate it which I thought, you know he's like okay I can use that I guess so. you, you make yourself a little commentary compilation put yourself to sleep every night is what is what I'm gathering from this yeah um, yeah, <laughs> if I, yeah I just hope that maybe one day Roy Hodgson and narrates one of the games or something so then yeah <laughs> um yeah so leo dubois cross doesn't beat the first defender that was uh one of the subplots of that match <laughs> against sweden on saturday uh, a one nil win for france really should have been two nil but we'll get to that in a minute uh uh jeremy it was kind of boring but could we have expected anything else really i don't think so i think the the criticism has been really harsh this is as you said the the first time that the, the the team has played for for ten months. Um, it's in that weird um, period where some seasons have started, others haven't yet. Um, there's some players coming off a quite intense period um, of the the sort of Champions League final eight. There's others who haven't played for a while. Um, there's there's a player coming in for his debut. There's another one who's been recalled after, you know, all the soap opera of, of um, Rabiot not not being in the or well, taking himself out of the the World Cup reserve reserve list. So I think there's lots of mitigating factors there. 
Um, they don't always have the best record against Sweden and you know, the not great memories of the last time they were there when they threw away a one goal lead and, and Loris made that big mistake. And, and you know, despite an Olivier Giroud absolute gorgeous strike, but you know, Fantastic. we're used to that. Yeah, so I think all things considered, to go somewhere like Sweden, who are always tough, you know, t a tough opposition, even though it's not necessarily their, their greatest team at the moment, and I know Zlatan was quite critical of them. Um, to go away from home, to keep a clean sheet and to get a win in all those circumstances, even though it wasn't the, the greatest spectacle, I think is a, a really good result. Mm. Mm. And Jeremy, I gave you the kind of mean question about how this could never have been a good game. But uh, Laurent, you're going to get the nice question. So lucky you. But <laughs> it, it's great to see the guys back out there again, right? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was just sort of like, ah, there they, you know, here they are, right? And and sort of interesting, you know, some shifts on the team, new, you know, to, uh, to um, obviously Pogba wasn't playing. Um, I always enjoy watching him, but uh, but it was, I thought it was great. I mean, I loved watching Conte, and of course, you know, it was a, it wasn't a great game, but that that goal from Mbappe was definitely like a super memorable one, um, kind of just a great angle and fun to watch. So yeah, I agree. I think Sweden's actually a pretty tough. A tough encounter and they're set you know they're off on a good good footing um moving forward with this win i was also trying to watch the belgium game at the same time so oh. <laughs> they scheduled the, the first the first two of both france and belgium play simultaneously so, <laughs> so mixed loyalties there but for anyone true. wondering I, I think i have asked you this before and i think you said you were for france at the world cup semi-final so um, I was, yeah, I was in Paris, first of all, so I knew that I wanted to have, you know, to party in the streets and so <laughs> I should root for the right page. But um, I think it's always, you know, even when you've got a split loyalty, you figure out who you're rooting for when a goal is scored. And I certainly figured it out that evening. But um, mm -hmm. but I'm hoping Belgium will get, you know, their day yet at some point. <laughs> so. Um, well, I don't know how many of us would agree with that. But um, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> um, so you mentioned the Mbappe goal there. Um, I mean... I thought it was a bit of a lucky goal and it was also France's only shot on target of the game. So yeah. it, in some ways we're also lucky that we had him and that he could do that. Right? <laughs> That's true. Of course. Yeah. yeah. We were discussing earlier how it's always the, the non-French people who are enthusiastic about, about French, French things, but yes, no, I think you're right. I mean, it was, it was definitely in some ways lucky and, but it happened. Many, many goals are random and lucky, right? Would have been nice if, uh, well, you were going to get to this, but would have been nice if, uh, if we could have had Griezmann make it 2-0, um, which he, was in, in a good position to do yeah so Griezmann missed his third penalty in a row for France um what do we make of that it's strange <laughs> right and yeah I mean well yeah go ahead sorry no no go on go on just I mean I because in general this yeah I do not think of him as as a, a bad penalty kick taker obviously for obvious reasons mm -hmm. so it's a strange but you know I mean I, what I was going to just say is there's just there seems to, I think there I think that it must be a very strange moment to be playing football matches because all through the different leagues and stuff there are just these strange right obviously very weird outcomes and strange things I don't know I I, I just think there's something you know, it, there's no doubt that it's a different context. And I don't think there's, I, I, I'm not, I'm kind of, I, I expect now to see odd things happen in games because, you know, there's no fans and all the situation mm -hmm. and stuff. I, I think, you know, it's just a very interesting moment um, and probably, I think, somewhat challenging moment for the players. Mm. I, I mean, it's been a tough year for Griezmann, uh, you know, not just on the French national team, but obviously with Barcelona. And we mm. kind of, usually coming back to France for him is, is you know, a positive moment and so on. And it's a shame that, he kind of ended the match on on that yeah. miss. But I know that Jeremy, 
um, is going to do more than than well, not that I <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna make it sound like I don't want to defend Griezmann. I want to defend Griezmann, but I know that Jeremy <laughs> is going to do it even more and even better than me. So go ahead, Jeremy. <laughs> well, I just, as he said, I mean, he's he. I remember when I'm reading, like obviously a few years ago now, someone asked if if Mario Goetze had done some kind of deal with the devil to to score the winner in the World Cup final, and then. For, for him to completely lose all form and um, for the for the rest of his career after that and there's an element of that with Griezmann not in terms of his form but in terms of the penalty taking he was so mm. we spoke about it before kind of in between that Champions League final miss um, and what's going on now he looked brilliant at penalties and you know scored two or three important ones for France in the World Cup including obviously the the World Cup final um, and then has missed the three he's taken for France since the since the World Cup final, and you know, as a France fan, I would take it that way around every every time. I'm not, you know, he can miss as many as he wants against Albania or in the last minute when we're winning anyway against Sweden. That's fine as long as he scored the one against Croatia. But in terms of his form in general, I I think he did maintain his form, um, you know, the first year or so after the World Cup. So I think, you know, that mm. penalties aside, he was still playing well for France. Um, and, you know, even the, the last match before before lockdown against Albania, which arguably is the reason that Deschamps sticking with the 3-5-2 the for these two matches, when he played that formation against Albania, Griezmann was, was superb. And actually, mm. from memory, I think the first of those two international matches, he looked a little bit shaky. And then in that second mm. one was was fantastic and that was obviously he was already two three months into his his time at Barcelona and things have only really got worse for him since then so yeah fine sort of criticize him for for that the miss that in 73 minutes or whatever it was and the penalty miss but I think again I think people are a little bit too harsh in the criticism of his play in general I think it's difficult for any player after this kind of upheaval to, mm-hmm. to find form straight away but certainly after everything he's gone through this year and it's definitely a concern because um you know if things don't improve mm-hmm. we can't sort of keep having to give him a couple of extra matches to find his form and to find his confidence i think it's it will be more reasonable to to judge him after tomorrow's match where he's had you know a decent amount of time with the france squad and he's already had one match to kind of get his eye in. Um, hopefully tomorrow we'll see more of him. But I just, I've got so much time for him as a player. I think he's so intelligent and he's mm-hmm. been so wasted at Barcelona so mm-hmm. far. Um, I, you know, I, I don't, as obviously Mbappe is is an amazing match winner, as he showed um, with that goal. And he got... He got lucky with the ricochet, but he sort of earned the luck by trying something that no one else, none of the other yeah. 21 players wanted to try. So credit him <laughs> right. for that. But I still think that Griezmann, with his intelligence, both defensively and offensively, with his work ethic, um, with the fact that he can fit into so many different positions, with the way that he can dictate the pace of the game, I still think that he's France's most important player. And so yeah. I really hope that the media and the fans show a lot of patience with him and sort of understanding for the the different difficult predicament he's in at the moment. I agree with that. And I think things are only going to get better for him, at least in the French national team. Because like you say, the team is really being set up 
for him and around him. I mean, Deschamps has changed his system to get the best out of him. And and we know that, um, you know, he's always been good with the French team, Griezmann, even if he has maybe like one or two small, very small rough patches. Like uh, it felt like, the, the, you know, with these penalties. Um, but also I seem to recall from last fall, I mean, I don't remember against which teams this happened exactly because it's so long ago, but uh, Griezmann missed one penalty and then the next time we got one, Giroud was the taker when they were both on the pitch and Giroud scored. And it kind of felt like Giroud was actually becoming the designated taker. But obviously um, against Sweden, he Giroud had been subbed off um, by the time that penalty came around. So so Griezmann took it instead. Um, and obviously Giroud was chasing a goal record, um, trying to overtake Platini. So <laughs> I, I think he's designated taker now. Um, let's talk about someone else, guys. Uh, I, I So often I think... You know, it's kind of a lazy thing to say that N'Golo Kante had a good game because everybody says that every any time mm. he plays. It's like uh, whenever I hear someone say, well, I really haven't seen Mesut Ozil do anything today. I feel like that's just a, a lazy thing to say, which isn't always backed up. But after this match, there was no debate that Kante had a really good game, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I love watching Kante. It's just for me, it's always a highlight just because of the kind. Yeah, again, the, just the intelligence um, and... Um, you know, it, he's it's it's as really just the it's so much position, so much work that goes into sort of positioning and being you know off, off it's off the ball, just like kind of his. I don't know. It, it's there's obviously also some very heroic and you know kind of great saves and, and moments, but um, yeah, he's such a pleasure to watch. And I think in terms of understanding um, the angles of of the, of the game and uh, positioning, it's it's it seems to me. Um, kind of, you know, un- unrivaled in a certain way. And it's true that to sort of, if all of these pieces, if the, if Conte at his best and Griezmann and, and Bob, you know, if those pieces kind of click together, um, I do think that, you know, the squad is really just phenomenal right now. So mm. the, the one thing that, that strikes me when Mbappe plays is that um, I feel like in football, when, when your team doesn't have the ball, you can do two things. Um, <laughs> you can force a mistake from the others right yeah. and that's basically what a, what a press is right where you you push together as a team you try to block off passing options mm-hmm. and and essentially put the other defense under pressure so that you know they either make a mistake with a bad pass or something because they're kind of stressed or, or they have to play it long and it's a 50 50 all of a sudden yeah so you can do that or you can be smarter than the guy on the ball and take it off of him which is actually a really hard thing to do i mean it's easier to have mm-hmm. the ball than not to have it but Conte yeah. is so good at that thing. <laughs> yes, he um, really is. Yeah, yeah. And there were so many examples in, against Sweden where where he did that. And the stat that I saw from uh, that GFFN posted was that uh, yeah, Angulo Conte has become the first France player to recover at least ten balls in each of his last five games mm, since Offset began recording this data in two thousand six. Um, That's interesting. I mean, I remember that vividly from the the earlier evoked, you know, France-Belgium semi, you know, that, that Kante, Kante was like vis-a-vis the Belgian team, which is a very hard team to do that to. He was, he was able to really, yeah, to do that, to pressure them, to be in the way, to also mess up their, 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 their plans for kind of, especially diagonal mm-hmm. passing and so forth. And it's just, yeah, really, really interesting. Mostly, mostly not not necessarily ever touching the ball while he was doing it, um, but just de- decentering or de- destabilizing the other side. So. Mm. And, and I, kind of, I feel sorry for him that, that in a way, that the only match I've ever seen him play badly is the World Cup final. I thought he had mm-hmm. a bit of a nightmare yeah, in that, yeah, yeah. but he was obviously such a crucial because, part of getting there. Yeah. 
actually the you know one of the most important tactical decisions I think Deshaun made in that final was removing him actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like like you know it's actually that's when the game started turning around because he was I I mean I think partly it was the brilliance the Croatian side had kind of figured. But he was he, sick too, I think. He was sick and he just yeah, something was off, you know. Um and then I but actually I think when they took him off and put it was in Zonzi, right? I think who was who replaced yeah. him. Yeah. Um you know, then the Croatian side was like, oh, I, you know, it was interesting. It de- that that in turn destabilized. <laughs> but you're right; it's true that, um, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, he's, uh, yeah. No, I can. I just I have nothing but but love for Ngole Kante. And actually, yeah, Conte, like Griezmann, has had a tough year. He's had a lot of injuries and so on this year, and obviously with the lockdown and everything, it means he hasn't played a lot of football. And to see him, you know, back at his finest all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere, was yeah, yeah, a pleasant he's, surprise. He's also sure. another one that actually maybe not as many options and not. As obviously so is Griezmann, but he he doesn't suffer, but he actually can play in different positions. Or I think people just assume he's a defensive midfielder, but he's actually got a really good sort of forward impetus as well. And yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah. been part of the problem at Chelsea, that I don't think the last couple of coaches have Understood been absolutely that, yeah. sure about how and where to play him. And I think his form mm-hmm. has suffered a bit as a result. Yeah, I kind of, I think partly, yeah, I, I, I do often watch the games and, and I wonder, it, what could Conte, yeah, what could Conte do if he was at a different, different team than Chelsea, um, you know, with, with a different kind of coach? I mean, I think, yeah, so it's possible through that. I don't, I don't feel like he's hit his full potential in the professional context. It is my opinion that the current Chelsea coach is a little bit clueless about Everything, a lot of things, yeah. but uh, <laughs> that's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And I, you know, I mean, for the other thing is, I mean, I just think Conte's story from having been kind of picked out, you know, in these kind of lower level, I mean, he's just such a great story, right? Um, and uh, yeah, so, um, and the footage, some of my favorite post, post-World post Cup footage was the footage of him and his family at the President's Palace, you know, you've mm. seen those videos. But anyway, it's just, yeah, I, th- I think he's a, I think he's a great figure. Um, in, 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 this is my Conte story. In, in 2014, um, I went to see Evian. Evian is my team, of course, um, uh-huh. in France. Uh, they played against Caen in Ligue 1. It was the first day of the season. Um, I actually won the tickets in a kind of prize thing. That's a different story. But anyways, um, <laughs> Caen won 3-0. Obviously, that was you know a bad start, a terrible season where they got relegated, Evian. Um, but, and Golo Kante scored for Caen on that day. Little did we know that he would become. <laughs> oh, yes. I only realized that years later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, amazing. So that's 2014, right? Is that your yeah. 2014? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's his. Yeah, his rise. Think about you know, like <laughs> it's it's pretty phenomenal, and and so such a short time. Yeah. Okay, so some of the other stories uh, from Saturday were that Anthony Martial finally returned to the French team. Mm-hmm. It was his first yeah. match since uh, March 2018. He was supposed to come back a long time ago, but it's just been bad luck with with injuries and kind of other problems which have kept him away from the French team every time that Deschamps has wanted to call him up. Um, so it was good to see him. Obviously, we had a debut for Dayot Upamecano as well. And mm-hmm. there was also the return of Adrien Rabiot. So I don't know if you guys want to pick out anything from, from those three players to comment on. I mean, I was excited to see Martial there. I think that's going to be an interesting other option. Um, you know, and I feel like he's been in good, pretty good form at um, this this season. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see him, you know, when Pogba's back play, that, how that works um, as well. So to me, um, it's, you know, I love, I mean, it's true that I just, I do love these in-between um, 
tournament periods just to kind of see what's being reconfigured and changed. And, you know, you can't go into the tournament, the next tournament with exactly the same sort of structure. So that, that to me, Mm. just those three players, but also just sort of interesting um, to sort of think about what, what he's going to do and how these players will fit in, fit into, you know, especially obviously for next summer's Euro, Euro cup. So for me, I think um, Upamecano, I know, you know, they often say like, it's great for a goalkeeper to get an early touch to kind of settle nerves. (laughs) <laughs> for Meccano is kind of the worst thing he got like an early yellow card which did the opposite mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. um i thought he he sort of settled in the end obviously it wasn't a particularly great performance by him but it's his debut he's still very young he's now got it out of his way and i i think it's only a matter of time before he becomes a, a fixture in the squad mm. and then for, for rabio i think i, I mean f- to me, it was insane when people were drawing comparisons with Benzema and saying, well, if he can come back, why can't yeah. Benzema? You know, Benzema sort of, you know, massively affected a teammate and implied he called his coach a racist. Whereas Rabio, the only person he kind of punished was himself, really. So I think it's perfectly reasonable for him to come back. And I thought he did well. I thought... Um, to start with, I thought he was doing a lot of willing running, which you don't always expect from him, even though he wasn't necessarily always getting the ball. But he also, I thought, grew into the match and actually was quite influential at the end of it. He had that one really good run. It was slightly unlucky that he didn't find a man with his pass at the end. But I was pretty impressed with him. And, and even before all the problems, he didn't always play well for France, but I thought yeah. this was arguably his best performance. I hope that he keeps that his be. head in order and keeps his mum quiet and, and gets more chances. Um, uh, with the return of Anthony Martial, I realised, I, mean, I don't know how I hadn't realised up to then, but that with uh, that Kingsley Coman wasn't in the squad, even though two weeks ago yeah. that seemed like a dead certainty to me. But is that Bayern Munich holding him back? I know there was there's often arguments between Dishon and, and Bayern over this kind of stuff. In the press conference, he was asked about that and he basically said kind of, no clubs tell me what to do. It just happens that all of Bayern's players, except the one that's barely played, have got niggles. And he sort of suggested that the reason that Coman went off um, slightly early in the in the Champions League final was because of a niggle. I personally don't believe it, but okay. I don't think there's any concerns for Coman's place in the France squad. I think it yeah. was probably Bayern influencing Deschamps. Because obviously he was great in the Champions League, but he was also good for France, you know, in the last matches yeah. back in the fall. yeah. yeah. I'm and he's also, also one of Deschamps' favorites. I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's terrific, and um, and also you know keeping that that kind of Altia uh, Caribbean part <laughs> of the t- of the of the French team, which has such an august history, is important too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so next up is is Croatia. Obviously, it's always fun to uh, face a former World Cup final uh, mm. adversary. Uh, but for this one, so just before we started recording this, it was announced that Kylian Mbappe had tested positive. Uh, so he's leaving the uh, French squad, just like Mondanda left the French squad a few days ago and, and was replaced by Bruno Costil. Although that was a little bit different where there seemed to be some kind of misunderstanding um, because, uh, well, he had tested negative originally after having been positive a few weeks ago. And uh, it, Apparently, he shouldn't have been contagious anymore, even if somehow the test came back positive. So it's a bit of a fight between Marseille and the French team over that one. But uh, Mbappe is a little bit more concerning. He's now going to have to miss the two PSG matches as well, the Lens and Marseille games. And, you know, 
at this point, we don't know, but I guess it could have repercussions either on the France match tomorrow or on more stuff. I, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Pogba, when would, how, how much time is Pogba out? And wait, there's the third player too, right? There's, there's two other players who are, who are out from this match because of positive tests. I oh, oh, uh, that's oh, yeah, yeah. But they, but they never joined the squad um, because of that. They just stayed home. Okay, right. Whereas okay, Mbappe is now just today since coming back from Sweden, which oh, is kind of I worrying, see. right? Because, right, I see. Because they were all right. Okay, I see. Yeah, I see. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. For me, it's one of the many, many problems to this Nations League. I think if it was a yeah. genuine friendly, probably people would be on the safe side and just cancel it. But. Yeah. Right. Right. No, that's true. This structure is. Yeah. No, that is concerning. It's true. Huh. Um, yeah. They, they maybe could have delayed it. It's true. But um, we'll see. Um. Anyways, uh, France Croatia. That's on on Tuesday. And the guys from the preview show will be covering what happens in that match later in the week. Um, well, that's all for part one, really, uh, on on France-Sweden. And uh, uh, now in part two, we're going to start with uh, our little French phrase of the week. And, and we've let Laurent choose it this week. Laurent, what have you got for us? Well, I chose Le Petit Pont, which is, um, you know, the, the version, <laughs> the French version of nutmeg. And I, partly because the... The uh, sort of inter- the, the different t- the different terms used for that across different uh, kind of cultures of football, I think, are just interesting and telling, and ex- especially because they're so varied. So, so um, what does so, le petit pont translate as word I for mean, word? Essentially, just the little bridge, you know, which which does sort of make sense, right? Like a little bridge over yeah. the ball. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so it's it's kind of cute and and almost sounds mundane, you know, like no, no big deal. Um, but uh, uh, I do like. I mean, it 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 does. It it sort of captures captures the playfulness and and, and uh, of the act itself. Um, so mm. I'm always uh, there's a Twitter thread that's I'm sure some of you have seen called Nutmegs as philosophical. Um, wait, uh, what's the how does he put it exactly? Um, I'm not aware so, of this. <laughs> so basically, um, he essentially takes quotes from philosophers and puts them with various nutmegs uh, from you know with a, a, a gif of one of the nutmegs and it's quite <laughs> wonderful. Um, but anyway, but so there's some, something about but uh, yeah there's so there's something about um, that expression. But that's that was the one I thought of. Uh, that was mm. the one you asked me. The little bridge as as a nutmeg is a pretty good description. Since you brought it up, I mean, we're going to have to go with its with its brother, Le Grand Pont, the big bridge, mm-hmm. which is a slightly less uh, uh, accurate description, but still interesting. Le Grand Pont, there's no equivalent in English for, to, for what this big bridge means, but it's basically uh, when you send the ball one way around a defender and you yourself go the other oh, way and then you meet mm-hmm. up on the other side. Um, right. there's, it's I should be like called peripheric. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking it's not really like a pont; it's more like a périphérique, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. a detour. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's uh, yeah, it's definitely less obvious. Um, or a roundabout, but but the ball <laughs> going opposite directions or something. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. All right then. So that was our our French term of the week. Uh, now uh, we're going to go on to something a little bit different here. Uh, we have the uh, we're lucky to have Laurent on, and and is going to allow us to talk about some. Uh, interesting subjects here. So, Laurent, uh, you live in the United States, and I know you're a big sports fan. Um, I think the whole world has obviously taken notice of the uh, recent surge in, in activism and protest among mm-hmm. athletes in America. I mean, obviously, it's not uh, originating from from athletes necessarily. It's been throughout society, but athletes have carried that banner as well. Uh, mm-hmm. There's been uh, noticeable cases, especially in the NBA and the WNBA too, 
with uh, some some even boycotts. Matches were boycotted in the last couple of weeks. All of this is in response uh, to the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Jacob Blake and and so many other African Americans uh, in the U.S., which has you know sparked the the Black Lives Matter movements, as as I'm sure you're all aware, of course. Um, we've seen the contestation uh, spread into European sports to a certain extent as well. So, for instance, I'm sure a lot of people have noticed in the Premier League, uh, players were wearing Black Lives Matter slogans on their shirt, and they were taking a knee before every game. And it looks like they're going to keep doing that uh, this season as well. In France, however, uh, we haven't seen as much of uh, that kind of uh, either open protest or even symbolic uh, gestures. Um, and, and that's what we're going to start talking about uh, here today. Laurent, do you have what makes France different? How come we've seen less of that uh, mm-hmm. over here? And I know that's uh, quite a broad question. <laughs> yeah, um, but... I mean, it's. You know, I'll start with a little sort of an anecdote, which is that so I brought Lilian Turan to Duke uh, in 2009 for a visit. Hmm. And I remember I, I always think of this because um, he noticed that my car that I was driving had a uh, sort of said uh, Michael Jordan Nissan, because Michael Jordan, <laughs> among the various things that he that he has, how he did with his money is that he owns a bunch of car dealerships in this area where he went to college, of course. <laughs> and I remember Lilian sort of saying like, is that what Michael Jordan did with, like, why did Michael Jordan do that with his money? Like, why didn't he start, you know, say like an anti-racist foundation, like I did, for instance, you know, or, um, and it was, I mean, just as a way into, um, and part of a lot of the conversations he had when he was here was how come American athletes are not politically active, right? At that time, you could mm-hmm. probably say that in some ways, at least with Juram, maybe, you know, with Henri, with, with other cases that there was in some ways a way in which the French athletes at that time were were more outspoken. You could kind of point to being politically involved um, in certain ways that at the time here in the United States was actually quite unusual. Um, and it's interesting to think that the last decade has has completely transformed that. And I think that the the last decade in terms of activism has been a slow build. Um, and there's different moments you can kind of think about it. The Trayvon Martin killing was really a first moment when NBA players mobilized. Um, and then you had, um, after Ferguson, uh, notably, and then Colin Kaepernick's, of course, protests, which really were pivotal. But I would also note that actually WNBA players and actually college women's basketball players were have been really the vanguard in a lot of this, um, protesting around Eric Garner. And they have been extremely important. College also athletes have become extremely active. Um, football teams, at one point, the University of Missouri football team, uh, basically would said they wouldn't play unless the president resigned after a long and complicated um, situation with with a racist um, sort of a racist uh, attack on campus and and the way that the administration dealt with it. And the president resigned, you know, within twenty four hours. Um, at UNC, the removal of a Confederate statue was accelerated exponentially when a number of the basketball players took a stance about it. Um, and you can really see, you know, a, it's just a, it's become really, really striking. And I think soccer players around the world, you know, there's been different moments of of kind of mobilization. Obviously, part of it is just social media so that that the players have in general players, I think, have gained power. Um, you know, in the game in all kinds of ways, but they also have gained platforms that they didn't have before. Um, and I think what's tilted now is, you know, at for a while, right, when Colin Kaepernick started protesting, it was like, okay, he's alone. Um, and at one point, you know, 
I, people started saying, I mean, at some point, the question is going to be like, why aren't you kneeling, right? <laughs> like, mm. and that has that that in the United States is essentially where we are now, right? So that the issue when in the WSL, a couple of players didn't join those, they, you know, or some some MLB teams have not done it. People kind of look at them and say, what's wrong with you, right? Um, so it's a really interesting flip. And I think, I mean, I do think some of it is just that the French context, there obviously is a Black Lives Matter, you know, kind of these, there's these same have been protests. And there are, you know, parallel issues that that are ongoing in French society. Um, the intersection between those hasn't quite happened in the same way as it has here. Um, and in some ways, it just it almost seems like it's sort of waves, right, that the kind of um, and, you know, the question in European football has so often been how do you con- about I mean, there's been two sets of things, right? One has been just the, the the question of racism in the stands, right, or racism directed at players and what what the leagues and players are supposed to do, how they're supposed to react to that. Um, you know, and some of it is, I think, that... Which, uh, sorry, on, on that, on, with regards to that, there have been actually very few incidents in France in the last few years of that kind of stuff yeah, compared yeah. to other countries, um, which exactly. is also so, interesting so, to note, yeah. Yeah, and part of what I was going to say, actually, is that I do think that, you know, for all the missteps and so forth, there is a broad way in which, notably in France, I mean, I think steps taken to address that seem to have, seem to be taking you know, having effect, right? I think that there's a kind of, um, not that there's never incidents, but, you know, there's now a pretty strict protocol around it. I think most teams take it seriously, et cetera. And there just seems to have been some kind of shift where, um, now, you know, what's really interesting is that that's, that's never really been the issue in the United States, you know? I'm, I'm sort of struck by this, actually, because if you've, the the kind of frequency of questions around a kind of racist chant, right, which happens in, mm. in not necessarily in French football, but in European football more broadly, right? You sort of have situations in Italy and Spain with kind of dull regularity, right? Um, in, in England too, of course, sometimes. And um, whereas in the United States, that's not really the question, right? The question in the United States is a, is a rather different one um, in which athletes are essentially saying quite clearly, um, you know, our communities in the United States are suffering, you know, the, the, we, we have, and they're sort of talking as people who have direct experience often in various ways of police violence or, um, you know, are connected to this very, you know, directly and feel that given their platform, they now feel like given their platform, they must use that platform to speak mm-hmm. out, address it. And the step taken recently of actually refusing to play is a pretty radical, you know, I mean, that that's that's an unusual thing just in general in the history of sport. Um, and not only that, but then having essentially their coaches and owners um, kind of accept that and go along with it and understand it was also pretty remarkable. So, and then as you know, this step taken recently, which is that they negotiated to have, for instance, uh, their stadia used as voting places for the upcoming yeah. election. So it's, it's real. I mean, we're in the midst of like, and, and I would just, sorry, I'm going on so long, but like, so I think <laughs> just laying all that out. And then the other thing is at the university level, it's extremely important what's happening um, in the United States. And now obviously there's no correlation to that, right? I mean, to think about, we're not going to see, you know, I think any kind of situation in which players in academies in France have anywhere near that kind of ability maybe to you see what I'm saying? Like there's a there's yeah. part of it that when you come down to it, part of it is that's because the U S is so strange and having athletics at the university level be so central, that's actually created an opportunity now for a certain kind of athlete activism that I think you just don't have in France. And the, and the relationship between those two, I think is part of what's happening in the United States between college athletes and, and professional ones who are, of course, I mean, obviously because most like, so players in the NBA essentially have all, most of them went through college. Right. And um, so there's links there. 
Um, I think it's interesting. One of the things that you noted there, which I hadn't really thought about, is is how you say that there's this kind of reversal where 10 years ago there were more French players. Obviously, Lyon Thuram is a very famous example, and he probably um, encouraged you know some of his friends and, and teammates to follow in behind him on this kind of stuff. Um, and how you say there's this reversal where all of a sudden it's completely kicked off in the US, whereas in France it's a little bit quiet now. And it's, I was just thinking it's quite interesting because that's actually a, a kind of, it's the opposite of how things often are if you think about protests and, and mm -hmm. demonstrations. I mean, in France, we're the specialists at that, right? Yeah, that's right. Of course. But, but, yes. yeah. but athletes are not, you know, getting, are not so much politically involved at the moment. Um, at this moment in time, anyways, um, whereas in the U.S., where demonstrations are not necessarily as impactful, well, they you know they can be at, at various points in history they have been, um, but not on such a regular basis as in France. You have uh, athletes all of a sudden kind of carrying the banner, and and mm -hmm. you know you use the word radical, um, which I I guess is it's an illustration of what that means within an American context. Right. But, mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it's curious how, uh, that notion of the, of the platform, which is talked about a lot in the U S is not so much mentioned with regards to celebrity or, or athletes or footballers in, in, in France. Yeah. I mean, that was always certainly something that Lilian Serham always sort of said, right, was that there's mm -hmm. a kind of almost like a responsibility that comes when you have this kind of prominence, right? Because basically, even it's not like people necessarily should listen to athletes, you know, I mean, you know, on some mm -hmm. level, right? You could sort of say, well, why should we listen to them about X, Y, and Z thing? But but the fact is that they, you know, and they are. And some some of it, of course, is, I mean, all of this has to do in both cases with, with the questions around race um, and the kind of symbolics around race, too. I think... One thing that really struck me in 2018 was that having written about, you know, all, you know, as you all, as you know, well, obviously it's from 1996 on, let's say, but maybe even before in some ways, but since 1996, the French football team has been at the center of constant kind of discussions about its racial composition, basically, right, about mm -hmm. who's on that team, you know, and there have always been debates and always discussions and for each World Cup these kinds of things came back. And one of the things that was striking to me in France in 2018 being there was that actually this time around, that sort of discussion really wasn't particularly strong in France. You know, like there, 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 I, as far as I know, I mean, maybe I missed it, but there weren't, there weren't what there had always been before, which is a far right politician saying, uh, you know, criticizing the team for being too black or having too many black players. You know, Marine Le Pen didn't say that. Like, no, nobody mm -hmm. sort of said that. So it's sort of interesting. I mean, that was outside of the United States, outside of France. That was. But maybe we should contextualize that by saying yeah. that in '98 it was lauded that this multiracial team was was you know Absolutely. world champions, and that there was this famous notion of black blanc beurre, which was uh, you know turning the phrase bleu blanc rouge, which are the colors of the flag, into uh, kind of a, a racial diversity slogan and saying, right. look, this is a new France where racism is, is, has been vanquished or whatever. And that was kind of a dream that disappeared pretty quickly. And, you know, the political class and so on emphasized that at the time without realizing that, uh, you know, they were wrong. It wasn't just because you won the world cup with a racially diverse team that racism was gone. And, and, and yeah. there, the, obviously a few years later with with the far right reaching the second round of the ele presidential election that's when really that kind of so well dream i guess or 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 misconception disappeared once and for all i think mm -hmm.
Right. Yeah, but football was intertwined. I mean, I think the reason that happened in 98 is because mm. in 1996, Le Pen had made his first attack against the team, right? During the oh, European okay. Cup, he, he attacked the team uh, and said, they're not French, they're mercenaries, they're not singing the Marseillaise. That, and that, that kind of, that's really what politicized the team. I and mean, this is a point I make in Soccer Empire, but like there have been black or North African players on the French team ever since there's been French teams, you know, since the 1920s. That's and true. it was only in the 1990s that it became kind of, and, and some of that is actually precisely because the far right decided to use it as a, as a tool. And I'll note that actually Le Pen in 2001, he announced his presidential bid from the Stade de France because there had been a France-Algeria game that had been, you know, interrupted by a, 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 a pitch invasion by French, French Algerians, basically, right? So, so French, French people who were there who were rooting for Algeria invaded the pitch. So it's, it's just, I think that basically because of, and that's what set up the generation of Juham and others to be, to use the platform as players for the national team as you know, then a kind of place to to advocate for this different vision of France, right? And to speak on and to, to talk a lot about histories of slavery and colonialism and so forth, you know. So, but I think it's in in some ways it's actually it's because they were attacked. I think that they that they mobilized in that mm. way, and then they became a symbol. They became a symbol also because they won in 1998. But then in in you know the opposite could happen in 2010, um, or of course with the Zidane headbutt. So, so another complicated version of it. So I guess the point is though that it's been, you know. It's been true for a long time that you can sort of you can talk about the French team and quickly end up talking about questions of race in France, um, and it's actually one of the main places or one of one, a major place where those discussions have gone on in in a zillion different directions. You know, both like celebratory or utopian or negative or racial. You know, but the French Football Federation, you know, gets and of course you have this l'histoire des quotas in 2010. I mean, so anyway, all all that to say, I think it's been really big deal in France, but the but the politics has gone through that lens, right? Not necessarily in the realm of professional footballers taking a kind of general stance. Uh, you, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, um, that's what I was going to yeah. suggest. So, whereas in the United States, it's a whole different situation. Yeah. The, in a way that it's, Turam in a way is an outlier because mm -hmm. a lot of the players, I mean, I remember the, the 98 team for the next, for the sort of the summer after the World Cup win and, and even the summer after that, practically every week there was some kind of charity match. And they're, they're all like, um, Lizazu is big into sort of environmental and, and you know, anti-polluting the waters. And Pires mm -hmm. had a, a charity called Le Rêve de Clara. They all had, they were all sort of mobilized, but it was more kind of charitable than political. And you know, mm -hmm. Zidane, I think he, you know, he had his charity match against uh, Ronaldo Select Eleven, but always, you know, some people criticized him for resisting sort of saying anything about his sort of yeah. cabin roots and things like that. And so actually Turan was of that generation, maybe the only one that wanted to sort of tackle those those yeah. issues head on. And I think I think you're Can right that it's yeah, kind exactly. of in in they were they were made into a symbol, but not it wasn't necessarily their choice. Mm. Yes, and I think it's probably the same now, except that it's all focused on one person. It's kind of all about Mbappe and the boy from Bondi and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and yeah, the, the worry is that there'll be some kind of backlash, firstly, because it's not fair to expect, you know, football footballers to kind of 
heal the world and curate you know mm. banish racism and also because as you said like every you know it's great when when the team's winning but it can easily go the other way and even with the sort of 1987 generation and the issues that there's been with the likes of uh, Benzema and Ben Arthur and Nasri and it's not yeah. necessarily anything to do with their race but um, it's used by both sides like you know the Le Pens will say well you know look at these kind of rakai or whatever and but on the other side they'll, they'll be saying well we're only being sort of treated badly or made an example of because of our backgrounds. Mm. I think yeah and I mean I think in both cases it's you know part of it's just a big uh, of an effect of the basic sociology of sport right which is that because pursuing a career in sports is a very, very difficult thing. And because many people who end up becoming professional athletes are coming from poorer backgrounds, right? Or, or they've, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mechanism for social mobility that is more, that's less attractive necessarily to elites than it is to people who don't necessarily have other, you know, other, other paths, right? Um, I mean, I think that's true globally, right? It's true around the world. And I think, so that, that's part of it, right? Is that in other words, so sport is one of the places where you have a very large number of people who grew up in, in certain kinds of circumstances, um, notably in circumstances where that uh, communities that are very heavily policed, right? That are, that are sort of, whether that's true in France and it's true in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so this issue, you know, so they, they, whether they want to or not, they're just, and, and what I think is interesting in France right now is that it seems like um, people like Mbappe or Pogba and so forth have similarly to this earlier generation. And I should say a lot of it, it's, it's really not so much about race exclusively, although it, you know, it, it overlaps with race, but it's really about background, right? It's where people grew up essentially. Um, and the fact is that, um, you know, whether they could speak to certain, whether they could be prominent voices who speak to a certain kind of experience um, of people who generally, let's say, did, didn't feel like they had a voice in society, right? Um, and I think that's that's the kind of, you know, essentially because the athlete now is, the, the other thing about it is the complicated ways in which um, people kind of are connected to athletes, you know, it almost yeah. like em- emotively. So there is something, I mean, I sometimes just say to my, my students, I teach a class here on soccer at Duke and just say, you know, I mean, the you know, a Premier League team is probably one of the most diverse groups of people you'll ever see gathered together pursuing a particular goal, right? Except um, Burnley, but yeah. Except for Burnley. <laughs> so, but you know what I mean? Like, in other words, it's not that often that you see people from that many nationalities and backgrounds who speak all these different languages, you know? To, I mean, so there's something to that, right? And I think in the, the case of the French team, it's that the French national team also took on that global sort of feel, you know, that it had all of these different backgrounds and it is true, including the Basque and the Armenian. And, you know, so it was, I I don't mean to say it's only about kind of race and empire. It's also just like some sort of sense of like the diverse backgrounds of people being celebrated, et cetera. Right. Um, In the United States, what you have is a, is a, is a sort of different scenario where you just have athletic leagues like the NFL and the NBA that are majority african-american right they're sort of a, a minority within the country is completely a majority within these spaces right um and they not they don't all have i mean they have all the, of course each of them has their own individual life and story and they come from lots of different backgrounds but nevertheless there's a reasonable number of people for whom the specific question of police violence in black communities is a, a very very real and personal one right mm-hmm. um and that i think is that's what we're and that and, and that's what we're seeing now and the other point is that the college athletes are also there's an additional point which is that colleges ha- completely depend on these 
unpaid athletes, you know, who are who are on scholarships often and so forth. But they they depend on these athletes to function as institutions in a very heavy way. Um, that I think for a that for and for a long time, for whatever reason, athletes, college athletes, were very unlikely to be very politically involved. But now that that gate has been opened, um, it's it's a very interesting situation because if you've been on an American campus, you know that like you know like the basketball team at Duke and the basketball coach at Duke are extremely important to this institution's self-image. Um, it's true at UNC too. It's true mm-hmm. at a lot of other places. So there's something there which again. You know, you just don't, so, so, you know, where athletes are institutionally makes a difference. And I would say in France, it's hard for me to see other than the players of the national team being symbols of the nation in one way or another, there's not really a correlated story. And, it, and it's true even in, I think in England, right, in Premier League football, I mean, you, you have these kind of, these gestures of solidarity, I think, that are happening right now that are very important. Um, but it's, but we're not talking about it anything similar, although you do have the case of Marcus Ratchford, which I think is an interesting one. So, you know, some of it's, I would imagine that athletes are amongst one another, right? They spend time with each other and they talk to each other, right? So, so to some extent, some of it's just, if the culture starts shifting in the world of athletes and this becomes kind of an expectation and people are sort of saying, Hey, why aren't you doing anything? Mm-hmm. Um, then I think that's partly what's going on. That happened uh, in the 1998 team where you basically had this Turam and others you actually had like Christian Carimbu, New Caledonian, but a very, very interesting story who kind of came to understand his ancestors as having been colonized um, and learned stories about them. It's like, you know, some of his ancestors actually were displayed in the 1931 colonial exhibition in Paris, which oh, was wow. basically like yeah. a, zoo, a zoo, you know, where they kind of put, so they put Kanak on display. So, the, the, and then Bernard Lama, who, you know, is not as famous as a player, but I was also quite quite interested in history and slavery and stuff like that. So they had this kind of little world. And I think that's what happens to some extent is that to some extent it's, well, what happens in these places? The the NBA strike partly happened because they're all in the same place right now. They're all in the bubble. Mm-hmm. And so actually when the team, when the Bucks decided to strike, they all talked to each other because, because they're literally just all basically like in one hotel, you yeah. know, um, and that's, I think, also interesting. So you have these all these kind of configurations uh, that are that are really interesting. I'm sorry if I'm going on too long. <laughs> well, just to go back on one thing that you mentioned, which I thought was interesting about um, kind of backgrounds, um, which has to do with, I mean, I think you, we can establish a comparison there because a lot of African-Americans, you know, their whole family background can only be traced within the United States, right? And, and uh, even if, you know, obviously there's some kind of origin story as far as, uh, the 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 oral tradition within a family is known or whatever. It's only ever been the states, and that's where the whole right. community is. And so um, the question of race becomes all the more important because it's 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 uh, you know their entire life is within the that one system of the U.S. and mm-hmm. and the impacts that race has in, on that life. Whereas for a lot of uh, black players in France. Um, you know, they will still have family or, you know, their family will know about what it was like to be living mm-hmm. in, uh, you know, outside of France. And and we see that uh, solidarity. I mean, we've just said that, you know, there's not necessarily a lot of anti-racism activism or protests, but there's other forms of solidarity that exist yes. in, mm-hmm. in the form of supporting family uh, that's in your country of origin yeah. or or stuff like that. or And so, I mean, Paul Pogba supports people in, in Guinea or 
or you know a lot of a lot of players do this kind of stuff including players who are not french who are african but who came to france uh, later on to come play football they will also do the same thing yeah. um, and so there's the kind of it's a different way of external exter, uh, um, externalizing it externalizing yeah. externalizing it thank you <laughs> yeah um yeah but something I did want to ask you, which we've kind of touched on, I think, some of the mechanisms mechanisms which can help answer this, but it's still an interesting thing to notice, I think, is that um, during the kind of peak of the Black Lives Matter movement this summer, um, I, I, I did see some people notice how a lot of uh, French footballers or, or other, you know, celebrities or athletes even posted messages of solidarity in favor of George Floyd or in favor of, you know, the American Black Lives Matter movement, but were a lot quieter on the justice for justice pour Adama yeah. movement in France, which for anyone who doesn't know is a little bit, it's, it's like a parallel movement because it's really yeah. a very similar story. Adama Traoré is a, a young man who died at the hands of the police in, in France a couple of years ago. And there's been a, a lot of activism, activism, uh, led by his family, especially, but but you know it's become a really big thing in France, and there were mm. big protests this summer at the same time. Um, and we, you know, there's the yeah, there was more interest in what was happening in America than you know the big protests that were also happening right here. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, and you know, the the connections are deep and deep because, mm. um, you know, the the incident that that set off the um, the two thousand five. You know the big sort of November two thousand five, right? Sort of a month of of conflicts and and riots in France, um, mm -hmm. kind of basically a national insurrection. I think that has some parallels. I mean, when this when this summer was going on in the United States, I was thinking about November two thousand five in France as something somewhat similar in the also sense comparable to the London riots, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And so some of what happened in both cases was that a what. In France, of course, there have been consistently been local conflicts around these sorts of things, right? Where there's been police violence, and then often, like in Lyon or elsewhere, there'll be, you know, for a week or two, there'll be kind of incidents um, and conflict with the police. But in November 2005, it became national, right? So an event that happened in um, outside Paris turned into. But the two, the two, the two kids who died in the incident that set that off, who were actually electrocuted. Um, actually were interpolated, basically ran from the police after having played soccer because they didn't, they were playing soccer. They had gone to a nearby town to go to a, a pitch um, and they didn't have their IDs with them. And that's why they ran from the police. So it's, it's just interesting to say that, in other words, the, the situation of like the, and it is also true that the areas around Paris as in, you know, so Mbappe and Pogba are also a symbol of the fact that the areas around Paris are producing an incredible number of really talented footballers for, mm -hmm. for specific kind of structural reasons, right? Um, there was a study in 2018, I think there were 52 French footballers playing at the 2018 World Cup, you know, if you included the ones from... French-born, yeah. French-born or people who have double nationality. Yeah. But I mean, most of them, I'm, they had grown up in France, they had been trained in French academies often, you know, they're complete. I mean, you know, they had double nationality by their parents, essentially. And that's how they ended up playing for other teams. Right. Um, the Algerian team, of course, Mahrez is an example. There's lots of examples like this. And that's another story we could talk about, about, you know, when people choose which teams. But um, but there's something there's something happening in France where it's because partly because the state has invested really heavily 
in sport as a kind of social service of a certain kind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the investment in municipalities in terms of sport and coaching staff, particularly, right, has meant that in fact you do have um, is actually rather different than the United States, right? You have actually state infrastructure that's supporting sport, and then of course you have the academies and then Clairefontaine and so forth that have been the routes that people have taken. Um, which is to say that in some ways, I mean, interestingly, although so many athletes come from communities that are in France that have been that have been at the center of these kinds of questions around policing and and just poverty and exclusion and so forth. But they also usually have often been very involved with basically state institutions of one kind or another, or local institutions, right? Um, so there's a kind of, I guess I'm just trying to say there's a, there's a different politics that, that, that that's going to produce, I think. And that's why I think it's it's been expressed primarily at the level of the kind of questions of identity at the national level. Um, Part of it is also now the place where you see this these politics in the United States actually is not is not so much with it has to do with sort of Mexico and the United States, you know, because mm. the, the closest thing that you can come to sort of like to like, I say, a France, Algeria or a France, Morocco match, you know, which are always kind of a thing in France now um, is a U.S. Mexico match. Right. Um, and as people will often point out, usually when the United States plays a Latin American team in an international match in the United States, it's, it's often like an away game for them. Like in other words, the stadium is, 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 has more fans rooting for the other team. Um, you know, one of the disastrous, uh, world cup qualifying games they played was against Costa Rica in New Jersey. And it was like a stadium full of Costa Ricans basically. Right. So, so there's this kind of, and there, this stuff does come up in a similar way, right. Where people sort of you know, there's criticism that there are Mexican-Americans who root for the Mexican team instead of the United States. And are they really? So so there's a whole thing there that actually has, that's where you actually see some interesting echoes of the kind of questions that come up in France um, mm. as well, like the sort of famous case of the France-Algeria game, but it's come up other times of, you know, people say booing the Marseillaise. And um, so, so, yeah, I think in the United States where I see the parallels have to do with that, like, we host this gold cup tournament, which is the tournament where like the CONCACAF uh, yeah. regional tournament. And those are some incredibly fascinating moments for essentially U.S. immigrant communities, um, you know, who are often U.S. born, but sort of attached to their homelands in various ways. Those soccer games become an ex- a place to express those identities. And there's, you know, it's not big enough that it goes to the realm of like high politics. It doesn't become an issue, but it certainly is a form of like cultural politics that that really is interesting you know, to see. And so that's where I would see yeah. questions. Yeah. There's another contrast there because actually in, in the US it's the opposite of France where all of the kind of Latinos playing football are completely not integrated into the official soccer structures yes. of the country, which is Absolutely. completely the opposite of what we have here in France where everybody exactly. is very well integrated and everyone really has their chance at, at playing. And, you know, that's, one of the reasons yeah. why, I mean, America has tons, a lot of good players on their, on its streets, but is absolutely terrible at, at soccer mm-hmm. officially. Um, but um, I wanted to bring that back to, uh, uh, what was I going to say now? Sorry. Um, and I'll just on that point, I'll just yeah. quickly note that FAIR, the, you know, the organization FAIR based in England just put out a report uh, written by two colleagues, actually, two, two historians of soccer about kind of issues of diversity in American soccer um, that kind of addresses these. And I would say it's, it's very, that, that exact point, which is that there's a, there's a, there's a huge exclusion of, essentially it's very hard to really get invest, in, 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 get um, into the soccer structures in the United States if you are um, not it's actually, 
It's actually because yeah, it's, that's what, yeah, yeah that, that's it. It's a it rich person's kind of game. Pay to play, pay to play um, model, and there aren't infrastructures. There aren't infrastructures the way they're in France. So you have a really different. It's mm -hmm. a really different situation, and I think those are you know we're talking about you know a social democracy in France that has that has you. I mean, France. I think I if I think this is still true. You know, it invests more in kind of sport infrastructure at the state level than maybe any other country in Western Europe, you know, as a, essentially as a social service, right? As a, as a mechanism to provide things for communities. But interestingly um, also, while that seems to be working really well with sports or with football anyways, for sure, you know, kind of similar infrastructure that is under a similar logic doesn't always work the same way. I mean, for example, schooling in France is supposed to be a very egalitarian mm -hmm. thing, but we've realized that um, inequalities exist in the, in the school system deeply, and deeply, are deeply, yeah. really maintained by it in a way too. Um, yeah. which... And I would say that the, I mean, I think that's the the reason sort of the politics of sport in France is partly that the, the educational systems that should be a route for advancement for people for various interesting reasons are not are, are continue to exclude people whereas mm -hmm. the sporting realm has become a space where there's more inclusion and that contrast is really striking right uh, mm -hmm. actually so and that's the thing because you know visually it feels like there's less racism in french football than maybe elsewhere like we said there's fewer kind of outrageous incidents or whatever and also it i mean there's a very good representation a very diverse and, and pretty equal i mean there's no basically discrimination as to who gets to play in the league or whatever there's uh or on, on the national team that's basically what we've been talking about but if you look at it in detail in in some other respects you know we will no you can notice that there significantly the proportion of black managers in, in Liga yeah. is significantly smaller than mm -hmm. black players or um institutionally there's other kind of incidents uh you briefly mentioned the the quota uh story as well which um, do you want to elaborate on that? Because I think even yeah, at the time, it wasn't very completely very clear story, yeah. to everyone what was going on. It's funny, because I actually wrote a little piece about the 2018 World Cup, uh, in which I sort of said maybe the and the MVP of that World Cup was the man who actually exposed that scandal, who was a member of the FFF, the French Football mm -hmm. Federation. And, and what I say, what I mean by that is I think that to some extent, um, to some extent, what Deschamps has done with the team and the kind of what has come out of that was partly that because that had been exposed. But essentially what you had was, so 2010 World Cup, of course, disastrous for France, the whole thing with Anelka, which if you haven't seen the documentary about Anelka, it's sort of interestingly explored there. Um, but just this general um, kind of situation, as well as I think a core, a, a very core thing, which is that FIFA had changed their rules about double nationality. Um, and football, which is which has allowed essentially liberalized it so that people could kind of change their mind even after the age of 18, um, even if they so basically they had changed the rules so that if you'd grown up and you'd played a bunch of times for like even the French national team as, a, as 15, 16, 17, you could still choose to then play for Algeria, say, or play mm -hmm. for another country. Right. So that that and so the quota issue came up because people at the French Football Federation at the highest levels were expressing frustration about the fact essentially that there were people who had been trained in these structures right um in france who then were playing for other teams right who were opting to play for other teams kind of making a choice that say like zidane could have made um but didn't you know but also zidane was in a different context and what happened was that there was a meeting at which somebody proposed um I'm, i should i'm sorry i should i could have reminded myself about the names of all the players but but um but laurent blanc was involved but there was a meeting at which it was proposed essentially like there's too many players who are like you know 
it's basically the players who might end up uh, claiming double nationality, which was a kind of code effectively for black and North African players. Um, and they actually at, certain, at times talked specifically about, oh, well, there's too many black players in our youth ranks and we need to think about this. And some of it was this kind of racial code of like we have physical players, um, you know, as opposed, I mean, you know, all the language of race around kind of the, the, uh, the, 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 the different kinds of players in football. So all this was talked about in a private meeting um, but that had been secretly recorded <laughs> and then um, mm. was exposed through Mediapart, the, you know, the site that, that you're familiar investigative with. Journalism, yeah, kind yeah. Of investigative journalism. And it created a whole scandal. And, you know, some people um, left. And uh, as a result, I mean, I think there's a shift, a shift around that. And of course, if you think about the Deschamps team, obviously it's, it's not a team driven by those principles of, you know, maybe excluding uh, players of, 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 say, of African background or North African background. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, so I think in some ways that, you know, maybe there was that mouvance and it got kind of stopped because of the, because it was exposed. And then I think there was a kind of reshuffling. But you're right that generally, right, st- the structures in place are not the high, the power dynamics, the powerful, the, pe- the people really in power around fo- French mm-hmm. football or coaches and stuff, like other aspects of French society are not very diverse, right? So you have a very diverse player group um, and this is true in the United States too, right? Sort of the owners of the NBA teams, you know, are, are, are not, you know, and that, that's the, the place where you see this the most clearly is in the NFL, um, where the, not only are the owners, you know, not a particularly diverse group, but many of them are very conservative. Um, and so that's where the NFL story in the United States has been to some extent different for, from, for different reasons, whereas the NBA coaches and owners are politically in a different place in many cases. I mean, this is, I'm generalizing a bit, but, um, Mm. and then the MLS is another case and the NWSL is another case. So you do have to think about those structures of power and how they operate. And I think that's going to be, but that's why, that's why I keep emphasizing to some extent, you know, the, the activism around the, the social issues, when that turns also to the structures of power within sport, that will be an interesting moment, right? Um, which is which is sort of what's happening with athlete activism um, at, at the I mean at the university level, you know, yeah. um, and be, because athletes are 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 sort of, you know, a number more and more athletes are kind of they're becoming very conscious of the fact that the amount of money that universities make thanks to them is huge, <laughs> and that um, at this point they don't get any of it, right? And I mean they may get it by because I mean they they get something by because if they manage to make it into a professional career, but of course that's not guaranteed for most of them. Um, and anyway, so there's a, there's a lot I think we're going into a period of time where this is going to be constantly at work. And I'm what I'm interested. It'll be interesting to think about what happens in France. Um, I the last thing I'll just sort of say is that you know there's lots of different forms of politics, and I think. There's still a kind of cultural politics at work. When I looked at, when I thought about the 2018 team in France, um, it's Mbappe and Pogba don't necessarily even ever have to say anything political, but the fact of them being just, you know, being clearly French and representing France and being who they are and, and in terms of their their story and stuff, you know, that has political implications in a kind of broader sense of, of cultural politics, right? In a sense of mm. at least, I think, playing a role of, of, going against the idea that somehow these people aren't really French, right? Or that they don't really belong, you know? Um, mm. So there, there's a way in which, I mean, athletes can do that. And I think in the United States, in the case, you know, the, you, you can, there's all kinds of different ways of, and some of it is just about shifting the culture, right? And shifting people's mentalities. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like, so at some point, if you're rooting for the French team, and like, if you're, if you want to root for the French national football team, and you really also want to harbor deeply racist beliefs, 
you know, you might be able to pull it off for a while, but it, at some point it's going to become difficult. You know, it's just going to become kind of hard for you. Right. And you'll have to choose, you know, it's, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. And and maybe in some cases without even I'm, that's a very, you know, maybe simplistic way to put it. But do you see what I'm saying? Like, I think so. So that I think in time, it's also about I think a lot of people and this is you can think of the French women's team as a case of this. Right. When people look at the French women's team. This didn't become an issue. It's also a group of people of many different backgrounds, right? Um, and I think it's partly because a lot of French people see the French women's team and they see a group of people who are like the people they know, right? I mean, it's not like, you know what I'm saying? Like also French society is very, is is like that, right? Most people, yeah. will have, you know, and so, you know, but that's helpful to have a sporting team look like the society and then you can kind of, there's a sort of move towards just so that the next if someone comes along and says like french people are white you know or french society is is endangered by people who are muslim or who are african there's this counterpoint which is to sort of say but wait i mean uh, you know obviously look at look at, you know what i'm saying look at who we are look at our team for instance you know um and so that that i think is important too and it doesn't even ever have to re- go into the realm of explicitly addressing say policies or political questions does, does that make sense yeah um i i feel like it's interesting because Really, one of the conclusions that that we always reach when we have moments of reckoning like this year has been for for a lot of people is that racism is really everywhere in society and 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 you know necessarily is going to reach out even in places where some people are not at first aware of it. But I I feel like it's interesting because in French football we kind of have this feeling that even though we we've given examples of of incidents involving racism it's a lot more equal than other aspects of French society. And it's quite a stark difference. I mean, if you compare it to the political scene, which you you kind of touched on, the the political class in France is overwhelmingly white. I mean, almost mm-hmm. entirely, yeah. which is yeah. so different from, from, from what football is, even at the most prestigious level, which is the national team. Yeah. And, and to some extent, I mean, my question is to you, when you see that and when you given that you know the french national team is also such a respected thing and so on is is that is that a cause for optimism for you because i mean personally i'm not a very optimistic person but <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, asking... I mean i think it's yeah it's you know you mentioned 1998 right and some of it's that like it i think it might have been possible for the political classes in france to you to, to sort of take advantage of the 1998 moment and the general idea that people had even if very briefly that like France is stronger because it's diverse, right? Basically, mm-hmm. which was sort of the slogan, right? Which sort of like, look, our team succeeded not not despite their their mixed, ba- you know, not despite their diversity, but because of their diversity. Let's put it that way, you know. Um, yeah. They could have used that to sort of make a to take on questions of structural inequality and to say there is an issue, as there clearly is, right, of exclusion, of higher densities of poverty, of exclusion from educational institutions. It's clear, right? You can see it. Um, there, 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 you know, so people, but, but that would have required political will that, that wasn't there ultimately, right? The athletes couldn't do that themselves, but they did provide an opportunity for it, right? I think, and I think what you're seeing in the United States is to some extent, um, you know, when I, I had a, there's a guy who wrote a book about Obama and basketball, which is, you know, so Obama <laughs> and, and he, cause I asked him, I was like, why, what changed in the United States? How, how is it that athletes have become so active? And part of it, it is true that during Obama's campaign, he connected a lot with athletes. He has a, you know, he's, he plays basketball and all this kind of stuff. And he had, he brought players into his, um, you know, into his orbit and, 
some of them sort of support his campaign and so forth. And there was a way in which that was a shift, right? And that kind of, because, and part of it was just that they liked one another and they were connected sort of socially and personally. Um, but so, you know, you can imagine, I mean, obviously like Macron went to the dressing room and, you know, tried to be next to the winners and stuff, but I mean, they mm. try to do that, you know, but like no one really did that in France, I think in the same way. I will say the other point uh, that was back to your earlier point about the, it's, it's very important to remember that in 2015, in November 2015, one of the sites of the attacks, you know, was the Stade de France, right? The terrorist mm. attacks, I mean. Um, and I think they targeted the Stade de France as, as a long, precisely because it's this kind of, it's a certain kind of symbol of uh, basically a kind of French Republican multi, you know, kind of idea of a kind of a France as this multi, multi-ethnic space, right? I mean, it's interesting, right, that there, that, which is just to say that I think, I think you're right that there's a kind of, um, there's a possibility there, but it would have to be transferred into, you know, deeper political structural change, which mm. happens, you know, which doesn't, which, you know, the soccer players are not going to do, right? But, yeah. yeah, but, but, but just as I was saying uh, earlier, culture matters too, right? And kind of people's daily kind of, sense of themselves and their culture can be shifted by sport, I think, um, and, and often is. Mm. Jeremy, are, are you optimistic too? Um, I think everything's heading in the right direction. And I think it's really good news that, um, I mean, I, I'm never sure about this whole, you know, sports people as role models and, and mm. whether they do have a, a larger, mm -hmm. wider responsibility. But I, I certainly don't think that sports people becoming politicized is a bad thing. And, um, you know, whether they like it or not, they do have a huge influence. Um, and I'm not keen on sort of politicians kind of using sports people and sports success as, um, I mean, frankly, propaganda, obviously not as bad as it has been in previous times, but, you know, trying to um, get reflective success from from sporting mm -hmm. people's success. But I don't, I think that if, you know, if there's a subtle sort of overlap between the two, um, I think it can, it's got to lead to, to, to a good place. I think, you know, the fact that um, you look at in England at, at just how much racism there was on the terraces in the 80s, and, and there still is a massive problem, but as kind of a bit like what Laurent said about, you, you know, you can't be a France fan and a racist. It's a similar, it's a similar thing that um, at some point, even the, the, most kind of brain dead fan must realize that you can't sort of be supporting your football team with a with a lot of black players in it at the weekend and then spend the rest of the week sort of firing off racist diatribes so um i think as has been alluded to i, I think often that the um sportsmen are kind of sports people are our inspirations and our forces for good, whether they like it or not. I don't. You know, they don't have to actively be doing it, but just being out there and um, showing that they're they're good people. And um, again, not necessarily politicized, but they do support um, you know good causes. I think has got to be a good thing for for sort of reducing racism and just improving sort of understanding between different people across society but so I do think it's heading in the right direction but I think it's very slow and I do think sometimes we take a couple of steps back before we go mm -hmm. forward and you know taking the example of America I think what's happening at the moment is great but obviously it took some really horrific events to start it off and great everyone's kneeling down now but Colin Kaepernick was a pariah for two or three years yeah absolutely absolutely
I think, I mean, to me in the United States, the other question is about women's, it's about women's soccer and gender change and that kind of stuff, because there too, you can see in the United States, I mean, in some ways it's the, the 2019 U.S. women's team to me reminded me of that 1998 um, men's French team in the sense that they, they, you know, they used their platform, right, obviously mm. to, to be pretty, to be quite openly political in the case of Rapino, but honestly, including Alex Morgan, who I had never thought of as being necessarily a political, you know, but so, so there are these moments like that where, where it kind of creates a, a, a platform, I think, but there too, part of it's because they're just also fighting for equality within, you know, within the sporting institutions, right, for better support and equal pay. So there's there, there's a kind of correlation between the internal institutional struggles, and then the broader question of, of women's equality in society. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's another interesting example to throw in there. You bringing that up, you know, kind of uh, reminds me of another question that I sometimes wonder about, but that, I mean, I guess is that it's a conversation for another day, but it's also a way in which French football is different. Uh, but with regards to women's football, we know that women's football kind of around the world, or at least in, in the countries where it's a big thing, is uh, there's a, within women's football, there's a huge um i don't know what the word is but um th there's a prominence of of lgbt players that is mm -hmm. pretty rare in other sports right and yeah, they're absolutely. quite open about it and 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 so on but in french football that's uh, in french women's football yeah. that's absent right so at the world yeah. cup you had all these countries where you know there was the us and the netherlands and sweden and and the a lot of the lgbt players on those teams were open about it and mm -hmm. on france there was no uh whether it's the national team or even in the league, it's it, there's kind of a taboo around that and no one talks yeah. about it. So there's there's another difference there, which, I mean, it, it's a whole other conversation too, really. Um, guys, we've been going on for a long time. So <laughs> Yes, your poor listeners, if they've made it this far. <laughs> oh, I, I hope they have. Come on, guys. We could keep on going for, for a pretty long time, I think, and maybe we'll have to do a part two someday. Um, but yeah, I think this is uh, going to have to be it for, for today. Um, but but thanks so much, Laurent, for coming on and, and talking about this. Um, it was an illuminating conversation, I think. So great to have you on. Thank you. It's, it's always I always enjoy talking about this. And yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me mm -hmm. um, and dialoguing. It's been really interesting. Yep. And thanks, uh, Jeremy. I almost said Jeremy. <laughs> You can say that, that's fine. <laughs> Merci, Jérémy. It's as long as you don't call me uh, Laurent, you know. <laughs> well, can I call you Jérémy Smith? <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. They don't really get together. <laughs> All right. Well, well yeah. Thanks thanks. A lot. Uh -huh. And so, um, well, you guys know the drill. If you want the latest French football news, you can check out GFN on Twitter at GFFN. Uh, our website as well, getfootballnewsfrance.com. Um, and uh, the preview show will be back uh, at some point this week. I think the PSG launch match is going to uh, change their recording schedule. So keep <clears throat> keep an eye out for that whenever it may come out. And uh, we'll be back next week. 